ultimately what it comes down to is of course being familiar with your bible and again what it says and why it says it and most importantly remember that magic's fundamental draw is it gives you a sort of workaround an easy way to get what you want and it's important to remember that your will is not supreme that you know as in the lord's prayer it's that we pray that it is god's will that is done on earth as it is in heaven so remembering to submit yourself to the will of god daily is precisely the sort of inoculation you need Welcome back to the podcast, sir. It is good to have you again. How are you today? I'm doing well, especially after finishing a super long review of the Rings of Power. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for viewers and listeners who are not familiar, Ross is referring to uh, the Rings of Prime, or excuse me, <laughs> Amazon Prime's uh, The Rings of Power. Uh, Ross, is it is it too, is it? too egregious to say that it was a bastardization of Tolkien's works in many forms and you are glad that you will never watch that again <laughs> well in the words of Jackie Childs from Seinfeld I'd say it was outrageous egregious preposterous <laughs> we have um we share a love of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and uh, fantasy in general, and also biblical studies, particularly New Testament. And in the course of our conversations over a while, Ross and I have have found that um, we have a lot of uh, similar interests within New Testament studies. And one of those is what we're going to talk about today, something that is seasonally appropriate and something that maybe a lot of Christians might not really be very familiar with for one reason or another, and that is the concept of magic. What is it? Where does it even come from? And when we encounter it in fantasy literature, like what we find in Tolkien and Lewis and uh, the world of Harry Potter, and when we find it in the Bible, what, what do we do with that? What do we make of that? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, Ross, I told you that I was going to start off with a uh, with a little anecdote that um, kind of introduces the topic. And then I will pass it off to you to talk a little bit about magic in in the world of Tolkien, in the world of Middle Earth. So I was um, I, I was at a Monday night football devotional, uh, small group, men's small group that we uh, that we do in our church. And it was after that, a friend asked me, a friend reminded me of a lecture that I had given at Pepperdine University's Bible Lectureship in 2018, the summer of 2018, entitled The Ghost with the Most, Spirit and Dwelling and Demon Possession in Luke Acts. And the point of that talk was basically to, uh, to differentiate how it is the Holy Spirit works within people. And um, 
and, and creates within them you know, life and, and, and beauty and goodness and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, and not just at an individual level, but also at a communal level as well, as we see, especially the spirit-filled church in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, some nice summary statements at the end of those chapters. I wanted to compare that with what happens when um, <clears throat> what happens when someone is experiencing uh, demonic possession or oppression or something like that. And I used Luke and Acts as my uh, as my main main points of departure for those particular studies, and basically argued that um, you know, and what we see in the New Testament is uh, is probably a good warning for uh, those of us who live in places today where there is some greater openness to the spiritual world that is increasingly becoming the U.S. I think it's fair to say um, that is increasingly becoming the United States. And um, with that increasing openness to the spiritual world or an increasing sensitivity to the spiritual world, it Think I, I think it raises some interesting uh, points for discussion about what can Christianity say to a world that is um, or to a culture that is increasingly interested in spirituality and uh, spiritualism in in various uh, in, in various ways. And so I I, I talked about that for um, talked about that for about an hour with this friend and am actually going to release that talk, um, that lecture, a few days before this particular uh, podcast episode debuts. And so um, those will coincide to kind of give a little bit of context. And so for those of you who are kind enough to read uh, or kind enough to listen and watch, uh, be sure to check out uh, that particular episode. It'll be entitled The Ghost with the Most. And um, Check that, and that'll give you a little bit of context for this. Ross, J.R.R. Tolkien was a devout Catholic. Is that correct? Uh, despite what you may have gotten the impression of from his biopic, yes, he absolutely was. <laughs> <laughs> Ross, you're referring to the um, to the little movie documentary that came out. Uh, it wasn't really a documentary. It was a movie that came out about Tolkien a few years ago. Yes, uh, 2019, I think it was. I've got a three-part review of it on my I was I was just about to ask, how long was your review of this? Because, <laughs> it, Ross, you're really my go-to source for for anything Tolkien. Um, and because I, I, I know and trust your work on the New Testament, I feel like I, I can trust your work on, <laughs> on Tolkien as well. Um, yeah, tell us tell us briefly why it was that you disliked that, and why one might not know, one might not know about uh, Tolkien's uh, Christian faith there from that movie. Yeah, so well, there is a bunch of bunch of things that they kind of glossed over in that movie. Is I mean, to be fair, it's only covering a certain part of his life from you know roughly when he entered school in Birmingham to uh, his time in World War One, and then it kind of after he comes back from the Battle of the Somme you know the biggest battle in World War One, he or the movie just kind of skips forward to when he's writing The Hobbit that's the way I predicted how it was going to end turned out to be right uh, it would be <laughs> him you know 
writing on the page in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit mm -hmm. and the movie's like trying to explain how he came to that but it doesn't really offer a good explanation for it and it's it's uh it gives an approach to how Tolkien developed his fiction that Tolkien would have really objected to the idea that, you know, if you know his psychology, if you know his background, that explains all the stuff in his stories. And really, anytime people tried to inquire about such things, then we'd say, I am not on board with this. This is not how you understand my story. Mm -hmm. The one thing he did emphasize that could be important for illuminating his stories was the fact that he was a Catholic. And yet that's something that the movie doesn't mention. Yeah. It doesn't show, I mean, it does mention that he was raised by Father Francis Morgan, but it never shows him going to church, going to confession, taking mass. It never shows how he and his brother Hillary, which Hillary is practically a non-entity in the movie, where, you know, they would be the altar boys who would serve communion. And I've been told, I don't, I don't know this for sure because I was, you know, writing notes while I was watching, but I looked down for what couldn't have been more than five seconds at one point. And apparently somewhere in that five seconds, someone says that there's like a vision of a cross that he sees in the sky. And that's, if that's true, that's the only thing that you would see in the entire movie that would indicate that he's a Catholic. Whereas like the longest part of my review, part three was all about Tolkien's Christian faith. And I went yeah. through 17 different things that, you know, 17 different bits of evidence to show his Christian faith. 17 signs Tolkien might yeah. be a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you can also see it in the major like nonfiction essays he wrote, like uh, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, which was revolutionary for Beowulf studies. You can very much tell his Christian faith there and his familiarity with the Bible because he draws mm -hmm. on it frequently. Yeah. And you definitely see it in On Fairy Stories, and which is one of the texts that one gives us his ideas on what he thinks about magic. But it's it arrives at that conclusion about how christianity is basically the fulfillment of all fantasy all myth because yeah. it's myth that became true on the historical plane right with the gospel story yeah and that, that was essentially an argument that he used that proved to be the tipping point for c.s lewis right because mm -hmm. they were both both lovers of fantasy and, and myth uh properly understood yeah, yeah. Is, is, that's right yes yeah. yeah that fateful night in 1931 as they were walking around oxford that he actually uh gives a poetic representation of the sorts of things he said in a poem called mythopoeia it's mm -hmm. uh it's in tree and leaf i think it is i'd have to look up for sure where exactly it is but it's mythopoeia which, you know, myth-making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Tolkien is a devout Catholic, and yet he creates this world of Middle-earth that, from our understanding at least, appears to be full of magic and you know, magical beings and things like that. Ross, in Middle-earth, what is, what is magic, and does that give us 
any clue to the kinds of things that we might see in the New Testament, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to consider. One is that with the Lord of the Rings, the the conceit of the whole thing is that it's based on the Red Book of Westmarch, a book that hobbits wrote. And this is, you know, sort of a historical recounting based on what would have been in that book. Mm-hmm. And so when you see references to magic, it's from the perspective of hobbits who don't know any better. So anytime they see anything that looks out of the normal, like it was, you know, sort of summoned to be and all of that, that they attribute everything of that variety to magic. And Galadriel even makes a point of this. And I think it's the Mirror of Galadriel chapter in Fellowship of the Ring, where she says, you know, when she gives Sam the opportunity to look into the mirror of Galadriel, that, you know, this is what your folk might call magic, but I can't say I understand what you mean by that, because you call this magic and the arts of the enemy magic as well. And so Tolkien also notes that in letter number 155 about how he's not used magic consistently because, you know, the Hobbit perspective But if he was to put a distinction on, you know, elven magic or, say, the magic Gandalf uses on rare occasion from the magic of, say, Saruman and Sauron and various others, it's roughly equivalent to the distinctions of the Greek words magia and goetia. And the way he describes it is that magia is one thought of more positively but it's also thought of as being a more of an inherent power. And so, uh, so if you take both of those lenses into account, Gandalf, despite being called a wizard, is not a wizard like a magician that we would right. tend to think of because he is, in fact, an incarnate angelic being, mm-hmm. a uh, Maiar or Maya specifically. Mm-hmm. And he has this inherent power that he uses for good. Whereas with Sauron and Saruman, they also have that inherent power, but they use it for the purposes of external manipulation and domination. Hence, it's more like Goetia. And that applies also to any of the uh, mages that are under Sauron's will. And on the other side, Galadriel, as well as Elrond and others, they qualify as Magia because they have that sort of inherent power as well, just because elves are by nature have more of a latent potential for what would be called magic than men do. And actually the way Tolkien tends to describe it is that they have that their magic better corresponds with what we might think of as art rather than machine which that's what uh, is correlated with Saruman and Sauron. Yeah. Okay. Where it's used as a device to, you know, control nature, to dominate nature and other beings. Yeah. That's a distinction that I, I think I understand. Uh, and, and therefore it makes some sense to me, uh, but I hadn't considered before. Um, you described, especially so, Characters like Galadriel, and, and for those who are not familiar with Tolkien's works, right? Galadriel is uh, is an elf. She is uh, an, arguably the most powerful elf in, around Middle Earth, 
I said, or one of, one of the most, we can say that's comfortably one of the most yeah. powerful uh, elves in uh, in Middle Earth, especially by the time of um, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Yeah, without doubt, and has within her an inherent power to be able to do things that, um, <clears throat> but does not require her to use um, use uh, you know. Spells. Very, go go ahead. Spells. Yeah, something like spells or or things along those lines that we tend to tend to think of. Um, yeah, and, and Gandalf is is similar. Uh, you mentioned that he's an incarnate angelic being. For mm -hmm. those who are not familiar with uh, Tolkien's work called the Silmarillion, you get some explanation about Gandalf's origins. Mm -hmm. um, he is called a wizard. Which is interesting because some some Christians might be a little put off by something like that. It's like, what do you mean? Right. How, the good guy is is a wizard. Eh, I'm not so sure about that. Well, he's called a wizard, and, and might you know for the sake of convenience refer to himself as that. But he is essentially a lower order angelic being, or what's comparable to an angelic being mm -hmm. here in this world, and and would therefore also have some uh, some latent power. You mentioned some Greek terms that um, that I think are appropriate for us to get into. I actually have pulled up here, um, like I mentioned earlier to you, one of the uh, one of the most common uh, Greek lexicons uh, for New Testament Greek and other early Christian literature. And uh, you refer to this word as magia. The way that Tolkien understood it, the way that it's used in the Bible, I think, is slightly different. Yeah, but. Um, I think that this is this is very telling for an early Christian view, not just Christian, but a, but a kind of a first century Mediterranean view, Greco-Roman view on what magic uh, would be. This Greek term magia. Um, the definition is a rite or rites, R-I-T-E, a rite or rites ordinarily using incantations designed to influence slash control transcendent powers often translated as magic let me read that again just because i i think that this is something that can very easily get lost um it's a a rite or rites ordinarily using incantations designed to influence or control transcendent powers but ross this is this is basically the kinds of things that we see in an episode like Acts chapter 19. Mm -hmm. Acts chapter 19, for those who are not familiar with that, uh, with the passages there, verses 11 through 20, we have um, the seven sons of a, a Jewish priest named Sceva. These guys are itinerant exorcists. What a job, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you thought itinerant preaching could be fun. <laughs> well, just wait about, what about itinerant exorcism? These guys are wandering around. They encounter a particularly uh, particularly potent uh, demon-possessed person, and they try to cast out the spirit. And the phrasing that they use is pretty fascinating, and it gives us a window into how people in the ancient world thought about this particular kind of thing. They say, by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out. And, and the the guy turns around and says to them, well, I know who Jesus is, and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? Mm -hmm. And he 
and he whips the absolute snot, just beats the living daylights out of these guys. And uh, they run out of the house. They're all naked, you know, fleeing for their lives, basically. And, uh, you know, such a commotion happens in uh, in this little corner of Ephesus. And a lot of people end up saying, like, hey, you know, I don't I don't want any, any part of this kind of stuff anymore. And they bring their magic scrolls, which would be filled with magia, mm-hmm. essentially. These kinds of incantations that are designed to persuade or coerce spiritual beings to do their will that is the that's the understanding that a lot of people have of magic in the ancient world ross let me ask you a question i I think this is softball i didn't prepare you for this one but i I think you'll be able to handle this one pretty well from a christian perspective why would this kind of thing be dangerous why why would christians say you know paul says in galatians 5 19 Acts of the flesh are obvious, and he lists um, he lists a similar kind of magic. This thing also gets mentioned in Didache chapter two. Why would Christians say, "Nope, that's not for us"? Well, there's a, there's a couple different layers to this. One is that it involves appealing to powers other than God, and it's also an appeal to power that's not, say, a petitionary prayer, even though that directed towards the beings other than God would also not be allowable, but it's trying to, trying to put superhuman powers at the subservience to one's own will that you exploit these powers. You try to find a way to use them to your advantage. And this would often be in terms of protection or healing Mm -hmm. uh, for imprecatory purposes if you want to call down a curse upon someone else or for this is another really popular one love magic and if i don't think things haven't changed in a very long time (laughs) Uh, i'm sorry what'd you say i said i don't think i need to elaborate on that (laughs) yeah 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 go ahead go ahead very much uh an exploitative and really fundamentally idolatrous way of know trying to enforce one's will upon the world by uh, using these formulae of power the incantations to use powers other than god to Mm -hmm. accomplish one's will rather than saying to god let your will be done and praying to seek that will yeah yeah that's a good connection there with the lord's prayer i i like that and that makes a lot of sense i also like the connection that you made with idolatry too that it it is very much the um the calling upon uh, powers other than God, which has always been a big no-no, just that has always been the case. Um, there's something inherent in creation that um, I, I was describing this to my to my wife uh, a few months ago because it's just the more I've thought about this kind of thing and the more I've taught specifically about um understanding you know genesis 1 and 2 as uh, kind of a having the language of covenant even though the word covenant isn't specifically in those uh, in those chapters and, and mm-hmm. how eden serves uh, as a temple space you know on earth a hot spot of god's presence that we don't see show up again until the mercy seat on the tabernacle around exodus 25 i think um <clears throat> we have we have this principle inherent in creation that 
you know, within the creative order, within the created order, there are things that are for you and there are things that are not for you. Mm -hmm. And there is also, you, as we go and see, there is a hierarchy very clearly within the created order, humans being placed at the top of that earthly created order. The fact that we're created in the image of God, right? Image there being mm -hmm. a, a word that's elsewhere used as idol, meaning something along the lines of commissioned representative. We, God doesn't need us. We don't need to create idols. God has already created a quote-unquote idol. Um, for those watching, see those air quotes. For those listening, yes. you hear those air quotes, right? God has already created. <laughs> that's why I prefer to say image. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. God has already created representations of himself. Images. It's us. It's humans. You know, and that's um, but and so within that, then, you know, within that earthly order, you know, there are things that are for humans, and there are things that are very clearly not for humans, right? Mm -hmm. Tree from the, uh, the fruit from the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, right? Obviously not for humans. Um, but even above that, you know, there is clearly hierarchy within the uh, within the angelic orders, you know, various kinds of angels and spiritual beings that we call them spiritual beings in general. And so just inherent to the created order, there are things that are not for other entities. And um, one of these appears to be certain types of interaction with humans and spiritual beings. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see something very interesting in a book called First Enoch. Ross, you probably know exactly where I'm going to go with this. Um, as uh, as Jews and Christians reflected, I assume as Jews reflected on the traditions around Genesis, many were enthralled with this notion of the Nephilim in Genesis six, and uh, but you know, many Jews uh, you know kind of began to wonder, is like, what exactly is going on here, and the collections of these stories, Ross, you know this, so for the sake of our guests here, uh, the collections of these stories was eventually compiled in a work titled after Enoch, the character from Genesis who did not die. He simply walked with God and was no more. He was clearly uh, extraordinarily righteous in some way, and um, you know, people began to um, – begin to imagine sort of what what it was that Enoch was doing um after he after he left and so we have this collection of stories compiled and uh, put together given his name and uh, in the 6th chapter of first Enoch I'll I'll read here a little bit in those days when the children of man had multiplied and it happened that there were born unto them handsome and beautiful daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose wives for ourselves from among the daughters of man and beget us children. Okay, well, that sounds very much like what we see in Genesis chapter 6, right? There's, you know, there's nothing, nothing surprising there, you know, with some maybe a slightly additional detail added in there. But then we get this, starting in 1 Enoch 6, verse 3. And Semyaz, being their leader, said unto them, I fear that perhaps you will not consent that this deed should be done, and I alone will become responsible for this great sin. <laughs> so Semyaz, a name that does not show up, 
mm-hmm. elsewhere in the in the Old Testament, um, says, hey, I don't want to be the only one busted for this, so y'all are going to come along with me, right? In verse 4, but they all respond to him, let us all swear an oath that bind everyone among us by a curse, not to abandon the suggestion, but to do the deed. And so they they do this. And then in Enoch chapter 7, and they took wives unto themselves, and everyone respectively chose one woman for himself, and then began to go unto them. And they taught them magical medicine, incantations, the cutting of roots, and taught them about plants. And then it goes on to talk about the, um, you know, the birth of the of the giants and everything else. Again, you can see kind of sandwiched within Genesis six, the first few verses of Genesis six. We see somebody has said, "Oh, hey, these are some interesting ideas," and they begin to reflect on those. Mm-hmm. And we now have this extraordinary story about, um, you know, that includes you know the origins, a little bit more detail about the origins of this. You know, strange you know, race of people, but also the origins of magical practices. And the fact that these uh, these texts mentioned specifically, um, you know, hey, good for these guys, though. Uh, good monogamous group of angels. <laughs> they choose one woman for themselves, you know. They've got standards. Um, but they taught them magical medicine, incantations, Cutting of roots and taught them about plants. The cutting of roots and plants and things like that. That's not that's not just, you know, like agricultural yeah. practices. Not and, gardening. Right. Yeah. This this is not gardening. Um, it's about how to use these kinds of things in order to uh, use in order to effect your will on others or to get other um other spiritual entities to do your will. And so here at the not at the genesis of sin, but at the beginning of an extraordinary degree of depravity on the earth. We see the beginnings of magic mm-hmm. here in um, in these texts. Um, Ross, jump in here. I, I've monologued quite a bit. Uh, share with us some of your observations about some of this kind of stuff that we see maybe throughout the rest of the Old Testament or on into the new testament yeah so with the with the roots and other such things that has to do of course with another notion that magic is connected with which is the idea of the great chain of being and trying to uh, sort of jump into the great chain of being somewhere along the line of you know going from the lowest part of creation to the highest you know even hoping to affect the gods at the highest plane to get them to do what you want. And so you often have these rituals involving these roots or various other substances that you could just find anywhere in the forest that if you find just the right combination of them and, you know, just the right proportions and all of that and say just the right words, then you can, know affect this link in the great chain of being from these lowest parts these ingredients all the way up to the beings that they're linked to and the gods that those beings are linked to and so on and so forth yeah depending on of course we're we're not always clear on what the uh, sort of theological structure is around these various magical practices but that's the basic idea that unites them all 
Yeah, yeah. And, and one thing is definitely clear, too, is that in, in the mind of many ancient persons, this stuff worked. Like mm -hmm. it, it actually worked, it, again, in, in their minds. Um, I'll, I had referred earlier to Acts chapter 19 and just um, you know, summarized that particular text. But I will um, – I'll read here, uh, referring to the, uh, the the man with the evil spirit who um, who whipped the tar out of these uh, itinerant exorcists, starting in Acts 19, verse 17. When this became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck, and the awestruck in the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed – their practices a number of those who practiced magic um <clears throat> let me see if i can find that um it uses the word uh, periergos there not a word that we had mentioned earlier but a number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly when the value of these was calculated it was found to come to fifty thousand silver coins so the word of the lord grew mightily and prevailed. Um, <clears throat> Craig Keener has uh, mentioned here in uh, in a study note that um, these magical incantations were so common in Ephesus that some concise magical terms used in charms and amulets were apparently called Ephesiogrammata or Ephesian writings, sometimes also called Ephesian letters. And he uh, mentions here that books were commonly burned in antiquity to repudiate their contents. And the total price of what is burned comes out to about 50,000 days wages for an average <laughs> worker. Mm -hmm. That is an incredible sum of money. And so we've got here the the reason for the zeal in burning these kinds of things. I know a lot of a lot of people today maybe are rightly rightly concerned, right, about burning burning books because that conjures up uh, images from um from nazi germany mm -hmm. um and then there's that great line in the, in the last crusade where sean connery um <laughs> is getting questioned about his diary and he says that what does it tell you that it doesn't tell us and it tells me that goose-stepping morons like yourselves should try reading books instead of burning them <laughs> <laughs> one of my all-time favorite movie lines um but in this context here in acts 19 we have just a, a, a very serious thing that needs to be dealt with in a very serious way, even at the risk of um, frustrating historians and anthropologists thousands of years later. Ross, when, um, when we come to stories written by another very famous Christian of the middle 20th century, C.S. Lewis, we see magic show up again. Mm -hmm. In the Chronicles of Narnia, what is going on there? What is with these guys and their love of magic and fantasy? <laughs> yeah, and of course, part of that is, of course, with Lewis, and this was something uh, Tolkien objected to. Lewis tried merging a bunch of different myths and different strands of myths together, mm -hmm. and so. No part of the part of the entanglement of that is you gotta incorporate magic in as well. But where he takes it a bit further is talking about this idea of the deep magic. Yeah. And 
you could think of that more like uh more like how uh tolkien talks about the enchantment of subcreation subcreation referring to the creative acts of humans especially in telling stories and so like this is the deep lore not so much the deep uh, magia you could right. say and you know to to i know you asked about lewis but i do want to talk more about tolkien <laughs> that <laughs> i'll allow it for now ross but we're going to get back to lewis in just a bit yeah, <laughs> yeah. so he made a point about you know when talking about magic and enchantment the sort of effect that fantasy and myth can have on a person he talked about this in terms of the spell and spell in old english could refer both to a formula of power such as is used in magic and a story that's told we oh. see that in of course the gospel yeah. that comes from god's spell meaning good story mm -hmm. and you know that also speaks to the kind of power that a story has if i yeah. can you know quote something here from tolkien's work this actually reflects you know from a hobbit's perspective what magic would look like mm -hmm. because it talks about this enchantment of a story and this is from book two chapter one at first the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues even though he understood them little held him in a spell as soon as he began to attend to them almost it seemed that the words took shape and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him and the firelit hall became like a golden mist above seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver was flowing over him, too multitudinous for its patterns to be comprehended. It became part of the throbbing air about him, and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly he sank under its shining weight until into a deep realm of sleep. So that's the kind of magic that you know, Tolkien and Lewis are both really taken with this sense of enchantment, the magic yeah. that story can provide, and God as the supreme author of the story that is history mm -hmm. creates. Yeah. Ross, that is, man, that's just such a beautiful description of, of what music can do. I, um, Back at the beginning of this year, I taught a class for new and young Christians here at church and called it New Vision. And it's just kind of a kind of a topical walkthrough of, um, you know, different things that you, you, you would expect to be introduced to as uh, as you become a new Christian. You know, we highlighted just one week, right? Just one 45 mm -hmm. minute lesson on like, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and yeah. Like that's three weeks right there. It's like, yeah, but again, it's like, it's for new and young Christians. And so it, it is by design less intensive. I spent one week on worship and I, uh, basically the thesis of that particular class was music is like spiritual language. And uh, reading what you read just now reminded me of that. That's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why, um, I think why Christians are commanded to sing. And in that class, I played um I played three songs um 
I, I man, I'm suddenly I'm blanking on the third one. Um, but anyway, I had um, I might have only had time to play two, but I played just the songs, not not the clips, um, not the clip, but I played the the song uh, "The Bridge of Kazadun from <laughs> Howard Shore's um, Howard Shore's score of the Fellowship of the Ring. And it's uh, it's it's just a delightful song. And I asked everybody, it's like, OK, even if you know what movie this is from, what does this sound like? And I said, you know, it sounds out, it starts out very grand as adventure. And then near the end, it's it's still beautiful, but it but it's sad. It's mournful. And then I played another um, you know, like one of those little flash mobs, a video that was going around. Pop, it was popular about 10 years ago. That the Ode to Joy flash mob at um, you know, some square in you know, Germany or Austria or someplace like that. Um, and it's like, okay, you know, what did you feel? What did you see when uh, when they're listening to this? And um, yeah, the same kind of thing where it, the music there had a, had an enchanting sense to it. And I think that that is probably a fair way to describe um, the the good use of terms like magic in, you know, like a Tolkien or Lewis, so Middle Earth and in Narnia. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask your thoughts about this, Ross, when uh, Aslan, for, for instance, uh, is talking to uh, Lucy and Susan about the deep magic from before the dawn of time that the white witch didn't know there uh, near the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe. He refers to it as deep magic. Ross, do you think that that is some kind of polite condescension for the part of the children that, you know, they, for them to kind of understand what Aslan is going, what Aslan is talking about, he uses the term magic, qualifies it by saying deep magic. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that might be what it is? Yeah, I do think it's very much like, you know, how Tolkien talks about with his works and, you know, from the perspective of hobbits, this is what they would call magic. And thus, from the perspective of Lucy and Susan, this is definitely like what they would call magic. It's, it would take too long to explain to him otherwise when he's, you know, that's at a point in the story where he's just trying to quickly summarize what happened so that they can get about to the business of, you know, <laughs> No, doing bring, doing bring the rest done. of the Narnians, yeah, so they can go yeah. find the White Witch. Yeah. So, just think of it as deep magic. I may explain it to you later when you're old enough. <laughs> yeah, and, and might not even, it might not even feel the need to. Um, perhaps because in in that world, um, yeah. or at least it, we could say that it happens off camera, right off screen, because they would, they would come to know Aslan more and know Aslan's ways more and would be able to more readily differentiate Aslan's ways versus the ways of the White Witch. Mm -hmm. um, in a world like Harry Potter's world, I I think we get to something that feels a little different. Um, now, Ross, I'm not sure how much of a Harry Potter fan you are. Have you, have you read the books or seen the movies? I've I've been made aware of the differences between the books and the movies, but I've only ever watched the movies and just the Harry Potter movies, not the uh, Fantastical Beast things that have come out since then. Yeah. So yeah. just those first eight. Well, oh, okay. So um, I had, uh, let's see, I was my junior year of college 
and um, I was um, I was I was trying to find a way to kind of talk with this cute girl named Linnea that uh, I wanted to get to know, and uh, somehow it came out uh, as we were as I was trying to banter, and as she was politely shutting me down <laughs> after one Sunday evening devotional. Um, it came out that I had not read any of the Harry Potter books, and she just jokingly, like just jokingly, offhanded quips, like, "Oh, Kevin, you haven't read any of those. I, I don't know if we can be friends." And so, <laughs> I, that was the summer that the seventh <laughs> book was coming out. So I yeah. read all seven of those books that summer. <laughs> <laughs> the things we do for love, right? And like yeah. we weren't even dating at the time. Like she was not interested in me like that. You know, just. I've told Linnea that before, um, but I'm happy to tell that story on myself again because it's it's funny. Um, I remember thinking, like, yeah, like this feels like an obviously kind of Christian story because the the ultimate protective quote unquote magic. Okay, we'll hear that have that word again. The ultimate protective magic is a kind of self sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's not obviously Christian or or at least subtly Christian, then I don't know what is. And then later came to find out that uh, J.K. Rowling is uh, is is Anglican. Um, you know, her she she has takes on on issues that I I'm not I'm not there with her. But um, you know, she's got she's got some kind of Christian faith, and that's evident in um, in what we see throughout the books or or in the movies. Mm -hmm. But then I remember at Asbury where I think it was Craig Keener who was talking about um, he was giving some some interdisciplinary colloquium speech and uh, it, it kind of politely roasted American Christians for their approval of amoral witches. It was like, oh, that feels like a shot at Harry Potter. Interesting. <laughs> and the more I thought about that, the more I kind of kind of realized, like, OK, it appears in the world of Harry Potter, magic is just another means of manipulating the physical world around you mm -hmm. that it almost rare i would say maybe rarely has or, or if not rarely then the majority of uses is just a means of manipulating the physical world around you you know hey your glasses are broken okay well i'm gonna fix them with my wand um you know, this picture that we took, you know, it, people are kind of moving in the background, like live photos on your iPhone or something like that. Um, you know, move this thing over there, you know, stuff like that. Um, but there are, I mean, there are occasional instances of what would be considered you know, dark magic, right? Uh, you know, it's referred to as the dark arts um, mm -hmm. in uh, in the world of Harry Potter. And, and those... Even still, those don't don't appear to have some kind of spiritual component. What makes those particular practices dark is their uh, their intention to to hurt or maim or kill. Mm -hmm. it, it is essentially how they are used um, and, and and things along those lines. Uh, Ross, what do we? What do we make of that? I'm going to ask you for your hot take. Can Christians uh, can Christians read Harry Potter <laughs> and 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 be okay with it? Well, in terms of reading Harry Potter, I guess I can't really speak to that because I've not read Harry Potter. <laughs> what, what about watching it? <laughs> yeah, watching it. There, 
I would say you'd be better off watching Lord of the Rings, but hey, still. <laughs> for, for those who are interested in hot takes, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's this is going to be a real shock, but I definitely prefer Tolkien's work to Rowling's. But, sure, sure, <laughs> and adaptations of the same. But, but yeah, it's there are times when it's definitely, you know particularly with the dark arts it's almost bordering on something that you would see in the real world sure. and you know with with magical practices in the real world that are still going on but at the same time it's all it's also that you have these uh like the spells are just these odd forms of latin and just because that's an odd sounding language and because that's this sort of stuff you would learn in a classical British school. Sure. But yeah. But yeah. Otherwise there's not really much of a resemblance. It's really just something to itself. Like you said, it's just another way of interacting with the world around you. But at the same time, they do talk about the risks that come with magic particularly magic of a certain variety yeah. that's for some reason they have a whole school or a whole house i should say that hogwarts dedicated to like no one thought that hey these slytherin folks seem like they're up to no good maybe we should do <laughs> something about that but again i don't know the internal lore of rowling as to why that is yeah yeah it, it seems in um you know, to kind of piggyback on what you've said, it seems like within the world of Harry Potter, and, and this might be the most helpful thing for Christians who, who are well-meaning and, and and want to want to take the New Testament's warnings seriously, mm -hmm. um, but also also recognize maybe the value in um, in entertainment uh, like Harry Potter. I mean, it's you know fairly family friendly. I mean, there's you know there's some darkness in there. There's uh, obviously you know the kinds of things that you would find anywhere um but you know it was marketed to to kids and kids can handle some things um within uh, within certain within certain bounds um you know there's certainly no um you know nothing along the lines of any kind of you know perversion or anything like that within the world of harry potter and um you know the evil that is within those books is akin to the evil that we find in our in our world today but the magic is i think superficially similar in some instances it is superficially similar to maybe what we would find in in the bible or um or in the real world um and for those interested uh here's another hot take i i do not differentiate between magic found in the bible and and what is available in the real world i think the bible is presenting the real world's use and um you know experiences with with magic and we can i'll flesh it out here a little bit more in a minute but in the world of harry potter i think that what we see is simply uh like we've said a, a means of manipulating the physical order um that is not totally unlike science in some ways um, yeah, that even that, that famous arthur c clark quote that any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic <laughs> which is it, which is uh 
which kind of echoes a line out of uh, one of the first uh, offerings from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Thor, where he mm-hmm. talks to a, a, to um, Jane, whose last name I've forgotten in the world of the story, but uh, talks to Natalie Portman's character, Jane, Jane Foster. Jane Foster. Thank you. Yes, Jane Foster. I want to say Jane Goodall. It's like, I know that is not right at all. <laughs> uh, dealing with similarly large and muscular creatures, but <laughs> not not, um, not dealing with Thor. Thorilla. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. That's a bad pun for you. Um, Ross, that can be your next Halloween costume. Joy. But we have, um, we have Jane Foster there. And uh, Thor talking about, you know, you call it magic, we call it science, or you know, your ancestors called it magic, you call it science, or come from a place where it's essentially kind of one and the same, where you know, th- there appears to be some blending, but the ultimate effect is manipulation of the created order, uh, manipulation of the physical order. That is That is larger the case in the world of Harry Potter, it appears, and the difference between good magic and bad magic is how it is used um and uh, that is that's an interesting that that at least raises the question uh for uh, for you know audience members okay well say that one has a, a gift of some kind how how then do you use it um and mm-hmm. and that raises you know all kinds of opportunity to to talk about morality and things along those lines and you know that's that is ultimately what differentiates essentially the good guys and the bad guys in in the world of harry Harry potter and you know it's it's more complex than that right they uh, they flesh out dumbledore's story a little bit more in some of the fantastic beasts prequel materials that um that we see but anyway that's i I think that's a a good way to kind of uh, narrow down to um you kind of narrow down what exactly it is that we see in in harry potter um so and i would say that of course something that unites voldemort and the white witch and sauron is that what ultimately motivates them is this will to power yeah and that will to dominate other things to make other things submit to one's will yeah yeah that's a really good comparison there ross that's a that's a really solid comparison um we see ultimately the same kind of uh, will to dominate from uh, from the emperor in star wars mm-hmm. and i mentioned star wars only because the force even though it is not magic it manifests it looks basically like <laughs> magic i mean just the the way yeah. uh, the way that you know things are able to be manipulated um, you know, you, you get into some even stranger stuff when, with the introduction of force healing, as we saw in um, in the Rise of Skywalker, and also in the Mandalorian. So yeah, there's there's some things there that could look even more like more like magic. Um, certainly, some of the uh, Sith practices and things that they they engaged in could look along those lines but again ultimately there um there appear to be the, the the difference appears to be the like you said the will to dominate and uh you know the the impetus for destruction and violence mm-hmm. um 
in the real world though ross and this might be uh, this might be another hot take um and uh, I, I i wouldn't be surprised if there's some some polite pushback from some folks uh that i know just because of uh you know where maybe what kind of church context they grew up in but ross is this kind of this kind of stuff that we see in the new testament is this stuff happening today and um you know like what what do we do about that yeah so of course one of the major concerns that was brought up about harry potter but it is it did also come up in talking about lord of the rings and uh, chronicles of narnia because of course you've probably seen the popular meme that's floated around about that list of uh like satanic or demonic things and lord of the rings and such is on there just because it features magic i mean yeah. of course they didn't have the sort of discussion that we had about that <laughs> but the, the and point... this is the height of this is the paragon the pinnacle of discussions about this kind of yeah. thing <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the the idea is that these sorts of things can at least serve as uh, gateways to you know more true to life magic uses yeah and now i'm not going to say that that never happens but it's definitely an overblown fear but i wouldn't say it's an entirely unfounded one if someone doesn't have a foundation on something else like if they're drawn in by magic and they don't have anything else that's you know grounding them to reality grounding them to god's truth yeah. then it definitely can have that effect and thing is it definitely is a real full real force in the world today occultism is still very much alive and it's not as uh not as blatant as it was in the western world say in the middle ages and of course in other parts of the world it it's much more prominent we know people from contexts where they they're familiar with mages and shamans and such so yeah, this definitely is something that we need to take account of. It's not, not something that we need to dismiss, but it is something we need to put in proper perspective, hence the need to be aware of not only what the Bible says, but why it says it. And that last point there, I think, is absolutely what we have been driving at um, at various points in our discussion, why it is the Bible says these are these are evil deeds. These are deeds of the flesh, as Paul says there in Galatians 5. Um, it is, one, it, it is something that is simply not for humans. You know, that that kind of entanglement with the spiritual world is not for humans because humans were not created for that kind of spiritual harmony, that kind of spiritual union. They were, humans were created for a spiritual union with God and God alone. And the kind of spiritual union or harmony or interaction that occurs with um, with the use of, of magic, as the Bible understands magic, is, uh, is ultimately a, a self-destruction. Hmm. It leads ultimately to self-destruction because it brings one in in contact with malevolent forces whose will is bent towards well like you said with 
Voldemort and Jadis and, and Sauron, whose will is bent towards domination and the destruction of, um, of the created order, and particularly humanity. Particularly humanity, we have um, we have uh, you know a couple of professors that I uh, know we've had in our doctoral programs who have spent uh, significant time uh, uh, teaching and ministering outside of the United States, and um, have a lot of contacts still among with Christians outside of the United States, and uh, there there's enough you. Know, he and uh, classmates had in, enough personal experiences with things that look very much like what we see in the Bible that I, I'm unwilling to say that, you know, that stuff just doesn't happen anymore. I, I, I've, I've heard enough from people who are trusted and whose work I can check elsewhere um, to know that, you know, they're not crazy, right? They're not lying. Um and they're not making these kinds of things up. And, um, you know, I think that this, there is something very real with some of this. It, you know, some of it's for show. Some of it is probably engaged in with people who are um, interested in some kind of, um, interested in attention or, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a bad thing. And so, you know, there's, there's a temptation to, you know, to put it bl kind of blandly, to do bad things, right? You know, mm -hmm. For um, you know, you, you're not supposed to do this. Well, watch me, right? Watch me do this. Um, I have little kids. I tell them don't do that, and when they're in a really bad mood, they will do the very thing, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that's analogous because you know, we're dealing with spiritual children, and when you tell spiritual children not to do something, you know, there's the temptation to do it. Uh, Ross, how can one, how can a Christian be protected or protect oneself from things like this? Well, ultimately what it comes down to is, well, of course, being familiar with your Bible and again, what it says and why it says it. And most importantly, remember that magic's fundamental draw is this, uh, it gives you a sort of workaround, an easy way to get what you want. And it's important to remember that your will is not supreme. That, you know, as in the Lord's Prayer, it's that we pray that it is God's will that is done on earth as it is in heaven. So remembering to submit yourself to the will of God daily is precisely the sort of inoculation you need against this idea that you know if i go down this way i can get what i want i can get it quicker and maybe even better because that's because as you said there is that idea that you know in the ancient world and into today that magic has some kind of effectiveness but it always comes at a price and it's necessarily an idolatrous price mm. and that's Basically, the root of all sin is idolatry, the, the valuing something above God. Yeah, yeah. In this case, our own will. Yeah. And it also, I, I would add to that, I would affirm 100% what you said there and add to that the uh, the price is, um, 
the price is self-destruction, the intentional destruction of the image of God, mm. which is uh, an, an egregious sin. Absolutely an egregious sin. Ross, is there anything else that we haven't uh, haven't covered that we um, that we should mention um, this afternoon? Not unless you wanted to talk about role playing games. <laughs> <laughs> Since I have zero experience in those, I will I will pass on that. I've uh, I've treated those even worse than you've treated Harry Potter books. <laughs> <clears throat> I will mention this though as a kind of one final uh, final wrap up here. Um, there's a scene in Mark chapter five where um, the disciples uh, encounter a, a man who is uh, possessed by you know, the the demons are speaking and, and as these entities are in league with Satan, um, you know. We might be wise to take what they say with a grain of salt, right? There's, you know, they they claim to be legion, right? And um, you know whether that means literally thousands, you know, or whatever. At some point, it ultimately doesn't matter, right? Because this guy's in pretty bad shape. And uh, Mark gives us a, an interesting characterization of what is happening to this guy. I, we would look at it and say that it, he is very clearly suffering from mental illness um that is probably well i say probably i think that's how we could give him a clinical diagnosis but i think that's a, a symptom of the more obvious thing that the bible points out which is you know his his demonic oppression that he's experiencing what he is doing to himself he, i mean he's isolated and so that isolation in and of itself um, especially when it's in, enforced by, you know, by circumstances outside of one's control, uh, can be absolutely devastating uh, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, to people. Uh, the text mentions how he is uh, he's hurting himself, and he is. Um, and if we were to see anybody like that, um, we would say, man, this person is in they're just in really, really bad shape. Um, <clears throat> we're given some other indications as well. I will, uh, I'll read here beginning in Mark chapter five, verse three, he lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore. Uh, not even with a chain for he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones clearly this man is suffering and the danger of magic in in our world and in the biblical world is that it brings you in proximity to the kinds of entities who will do this very thing to you mm -hmm. um because that is that is their will and like you said, what inoculates someone is um, is an understanding of this kind of thing, and we would also both affirm that you know the indwelling Holy Spirit is a powerful means, uh, more powerful, because the indwelling Holy Spirit is the is the entity with whom humans were created 
for or the entity for whom humans were created to experience this kind of kind of um you know, spiritual union mm -hmm. i think i worded that really oddly but i think it makes sense <laughs> um, made to be temples of the holy spirit precisely precisely and in a world that um in a world that maybe respected people who were vessels for spiritual entities like these different uh, you know, prophets and prophetesses around special sites in the Greco-Roman world, oracles, mm -hmm. oracle at Delphi and, uh, and others, the kind of temple that one should be, like you said, is temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we're also going to wrap up our, um, our discussion today. We've, uh, we've had a lot of fantasy talked uh, talked about the bible and uh, and and how the the biblical worldview is essentially the worldview that uh, that christians ought to adopt mm -hmm. um, the biblical worldview on spirituality is the worldview that christians ought to adopt and and so there might be some christians who say well you know that's just how they thought about it well there's there's probably more wisdom there than we might uh, we might tend to think ross close us out do we have uh, you got any more home run takes or anything else you want to wrap up with close us out with oh i don't know I, I think i've said just uh all that i've wanted to say very good very good ross appreciate you man thank you very much absolutely bye-bye